Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. In today's episode, we welcome back Mandy Azalei. Mandy is a doctor of Chinese medicine and her approach to diagnosis and treatment is integrative. She integrates and blends the philosophies and empirical knowledge of traditional Chinese medicine with the research and modern advancements of Western medicine. In our previous episode with Mandy, we spoke more generally about the role of Chinese medicine and fertility. Today, Mandy joins us to speak about the specifics of acupuncture and how it can help fertility treatment. Welcome back, Mandy, to Knocked Up. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be back. And now um, I'm, you know, in a different capacity as I'm now a team member at Women's Health Melbourne. We have another episode with you, Mandy, but um, for people who don't know you, do you maybe want to just give us a little bit quick intro about how you came to be a Chinese medicine practitioner? Sure. I always knew that I wanted to help people. I always had a fascination in the human body and in health. I used to spend um, my weekends watching surgeries while I was a school student and just hanging out in, in hospitals just watching how things roll. So my goal was always to do medicine and plans changed. I did biomedical science and then through my own personal journey, I decided to go into a natural medicine focus and studied the double degree of acupuncture, which uh, Chinese medicine, which included acupuncture and herbal medicine. But to make life more challenging for myself, because I love challenges, I studied the naturopathy bachelor degree simultaneously. I now integrate all those aspects and all my learning into formulating a treatment plan for a patient, but I'm primarily a Chinese medicine practitioner and doing acupuncture on patients is one of my favorite things to do. Women's health obviously um, is one of my special interest areas And I love supporting women on their journey to starting their families. So whether it's someone who's coming for uh, for some preconception care, whether it's someone who is coming off the pill and wants to regulate their cycle, or someone who's already been on quite a a fertility journey and needs support as, as they embark upon assisted reproduction. And then I love following them following them on that journey through pregnancy and breastfeeding and beyond and hopefully onto future pregnancies as well. So today we're mainly going to discuss acupuncture and how it's used when people are trying to conceive, but I think it is worth keeping in mind that whilst that's what we're talking about today, what you are able to help women with far extends pregnancy and really into the rest of their lives. Yes, Yeah, I was on a talk the other day, an Instagram live 
uh, with Priya Alexander, the wholesome doctor, and we were talking a bit about nausea in pregnancy and Mandy popped up <laughs> and um, was talking about acupuncture and uh, it's something we don't always remember when we think about nausea in pregnancy but I'm sure a lot of women would value the input of acupuncture when they're struggling and really don't want to take a whole heap of medication. Yes yeah, so when we look at the research behind acupuncture for nausea be it morning sickness or pregnancy related or someone who's having chemotherapy or for any other you know, reasons might even be food poisoning, it is very helpful and the research is very positive and shows that it, it can help significantly reduce um, the symptoms of nausea. When a patient comes to me who's in their, in their first trimester with nausea, the first thing I do is actually ask them about their diet and lifestyle and make sure that they're having small, frequent meals, that they're balancing their sugar levels, that they've tried things like ginger, that they're staying hydrated. And for some women, we even change up their natal multivitamin because some natal multivitamins have a very high dose of iron, which can be very aggravating on the stomach. And if you just eliminate that form, often women feel a lot better. There are some women that still might feel nauseous from their natal multi and, you know, telling them to take it at night can be helpful as well. Once we've gone through all of that, we can then start on acupuncture. And the most famous point for nausea in pregnancy or nausea for anything is on the wrist. And it's called pericardium 6 and it helps to decrease the rebellious energy that is coming from the stomach. So the nausea in Chinese medicine is called rebellious stomach qi. And that often happens in women who have a lot of stomach heat. So they might be predisposed to heartburn and bad breath. And helping to decrease that rebellious stomach qi really helps. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of women who've suffered from nausea in pregnancy can really relate to that feeling of rebellious chi. It is quite rebellious, <laughs> isn't it? And it's not when we want it to be and it's, it's really, really uncomfortable. So. Mandy, how does acupuncture work? That is the million-dollar question. So from a more scientific perspective, we talk about it releasing endorphins and oxytocin. So endorphins are our natural painkillers and oxytocin is like our love hormone. And by activating those receptors in our body and allowing those hormones to flow, it can really help in a lot of ways. So when we talk about acupuncture, we've got to divide it up into different things. So there can be musculoskeletal acupuncture, which is very different to the acupuncture we might do on women who are on their fertility journey. When we're trying to influence the menstrual cycle, we are primarily trying to decrease a woman's stress response and allow their own hormonal, what we call the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access to um, take over. And each woman has her own innate ability to have a menstrual cycle and to reproduce. And sometimes our life can, and, and toxicity from our life or emotions or stress can get in the way of that. And it has pressed pause on the body's ability to do it. So acupuncture helps to re reset that and let the body do it itself. And 
if for some reason we can't, then of course there's a lot of pharmaceutical things that can be done to um, intervene and, and override that. I've actually also noticed in my patient population a particular subset of women who are prone to hypothalamic functional anovulation. So I know they're, they're huge words for our listeners, but basically like there's nothing wrong with the ovary, but the environment in which a woman lives, her stress, her anxiety, sometimes some other factors that we bring into the mix, often to kind of self-medicate those factors like exercise intensely, the intenseness of our exercise regimen, the way we eat, whether we're carrying enough body fat because the body wants to know that you've got enough fat that if you went into some kind of difficulty in pregnancy in the natural world that you'd be okay. So when women are too skinny, sometimes as a bit of a protective mechanism, the brain stops them from ovulating. So all of these factors together can cause functional hypothalamic oligo, which means sometimes ovulate or a or an ovulation, not ovulate at all kind of problems. And I can see how there's a threshold because I've known in my practice, many women who have at different stages of their lives been hypothalamically suppressed and then at subsequent stages might not. And an example of that is patients who've come back to me for help having a second child. It can often be a lot easier to induce ovulation even when they still need it induced than having the first baby. I think one factor there is stress because they have a belief in their body now that they can have a baby because they have had a baby. And I think when you haven't had a baby and you're struggling, there's part of our minds that's that's kind of off thinking, will this ever happen for me? I might never be a mum. I might never realise my dreams. And that's kind of the devil sitting on our shoulder and it can just add to a cycle of stress. Have you found that also in your practice, Mandy, that sometimes people have all of these factors weighing in and then sometimes at other stages of their life, those influences are different? Absolutely. I meet quite a few patients who were told in as teenagers by a doctor that they may really struggle having children and it haunts them and so they start to believe it and They come to me and I say to them, from my perspective, the way I assess you, there is no reason why you're not going to have children. This is going to happen for you. Let's optimize the environment in your body, everything, your nutritional status, um, the blood flow to your ovaries, to your uterus, and let's give your body a go. And if you need assistance, that's fine. There, you know, modern medicine is amazing and there's so much that can be done to assist you. But get rid of this idea that you, you're not going to have children. So that, that's one cohort of patient that I see. And then they do fall pregnant, whether it's quickly and naturally or with a bit of assistance. And their subsequent pregnancies are very quick and easy. And they actually are normally quite surprised as to how quickly it happens. Then there are the other subset, as you mentioned, which are they after their first child, they then struggle. And I agree, it's often because they've lost too much weight or they are very stressed, or there's something about their transition to motherhood that has really affected them emotionally and psychologically. Sometimes it's a career, a pause in their career or something to do with their relationship. And I think it's really important to talk to them about that and try and work that out. For some of my patients, it's about exploring 
where are you living? Are you happy where you're living? Do you have room for a second baby? And it comes out that they actually are very stressed about having a second baby because they're cramped and they're on top of each other and there's no bedroom. And it's about making a space, telling them to make a space in their in their life for that. And it's okay. You can have a baby anywhere. You don't have to have a bedroom for the baby. So, um, yes, I think there can absolutely be a medical reason for it. And sometimes it's an emotional blockage that we need to talk about and help them detox. I've had patients in that circumstance also, Mandy, who've come to me having been told earlier in their life, often probably in a fleeting comment that whoever made that comment really didn't really understand how impactful it would be that they'd struggle to have children. One group is polycystic ovarian syndrome patients. I find they've often been told that they're likely to have problems. And, you know, that's one group of patients who may not ovulate regularly, but firstly, diet and lifestyle changes are so incredibly powerful. And if those alone don't work, we can usually induce ovulation. And if there's no other concerns, most of my patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome conceive by having sex with their partner in privacy, um, just with a bit of help in the lead up to get them to release an egg. Yes, I agree. And, you know, as a teenager, I was told by quite a scary doctor that I had polycystic ovaries and it's going to be difficult. And interestingly, because I come from a family where my mum is one of five kids and my dad's one of four, and my grandmother has always said, you know, we're a very fertile bunch and we're a very big family and no one's ever going to have problems falling pregnant. I chose to disregard what that doctor had said to me and not own that. And luckily for my my kids, I fell pregnant the first time. But I think it's really important to go back to that old school um, family idea of talking to your mother, talking to your grandmother, talking to your aunties, and if you've got older sisters, and finding out what their menstrual history is. A lot of um, patients who come to see me with endo talk about, oh, yes, my mother had terrible period pain. She had been in bed for days and then she had a hysterectomy and, you know, endo wasn't diagnosed in in past generations very frequently and lots of mums and grandmothers would just sweep that under the carpet because they didn't want to scare their, their daughters into having, you know, that painful periods were a problem. And so I think... I agree with the PCO or the PCOS patient. They, they're often told as teenagers and, and that haunts them. But also with the endo patients um, or fibroid patients, it's really important to tell them that it's something that they need to get checked and dealt with and have a plan going forward. Mandy, is there something around timing with acupuncture and treatment? Like if you're not getting fertility treatment, so say you're just starting to try and get pregnant and you're not ready to go and see Raylia, but you've heard that seeing a Chinese doctor can help, what kind of treatment is done? How does acupuncture help? Is there a frequency involved? When someone comes to me for the first time and we do a very thorough initial patient history, uh, medical history, family medical history. Together we formulate the treatment plan. How quickly do they want things to happen? What is the underlying cause of, you know, why they might be coming to see me? I would say that weekly acupuncture at first is really beneficial. The first couple sessions 
people take time to get used to the environment, what it feels like, what it's meant to feel like. And once they actually, the penny drops for them and they realize, wow, this is actually really relaxing. I was able to really switch off. Afterwards, I, I, I really felt relaxed and was sleeping better. My mind was clearer, able to really think more clearly. Then they start to realize the benefits of acupuncture and they start to believe in it. So I think the first thing is to get them to understand how it's what it's doing to their body and to enjoy it. So if someone doesn't enjoy it, there's no point in continuing. I always want someone to enjoy their sessions with me. Weekly acupuncture sessions is probably the most beneficial because that's how you get results quicker. There are some practitioners that do it twice a week, but I find that's a big pressure on patients in their busy lives to come twice a week. And I see very, very good results weekly. For some women, I might just suggest that they come fortnightly. And if someone is really time poor, I would then say monthly. And depending on what their presenting complaint is, I will then tell them when to come. So I'd say the most common time to come is just before ovulation, so mid-cycle, to really encourage blood flow to the uterus, blood flow to the ovaries, and really help ovulation. It really does depend on why the person is coming to me, but the short answer is weekly is best at first, and then we start to spread out the treatments as as we gain momentum and they're, we're achieving what they want out of their treatment. I find it interesting how you refer to each other in a, in a way. So Mandy, you know, you'd get to a stage where you've had someone come and see you and then it's really time for them to see a fertility specialist to take their treatment to the next level. And then Raylia, you might be starting to see someone and you think it might be beneficial for them to see Mandy to get some additional support. Don't know who wants to go first, but how how do you decide when it's time to refer to each other? Well, I'm happy to start first. Look, I am aware that when a patient comes to see me, they have certain goals. And one of the things I always try and do is work out what those those goals are. But fertility treatment takes time. And no matter what our pathway is, whether it's more gentle measures in the clinic lifestyle optimization, medication to assist ovulation or the assisted reproductive technologies, I always say that fertility treatment can be a marathon, not a sprint, and it takes time. And one important thing is to try and have patients as healthy and well as they can be, both physically and also mentally. And I think one of the ways that we can really try and give a patient the very best experience is to build a team. And just like Mandy said, if a patient doesn't enjoy acupuncture, it's not for them. You know, I never pressure patients to see multiple allied health practitioners if it's not for them. But I do find that many of my patients are very open to building a team and having a holistic approach. And it's one of the things that's really nice about the clinic that we're trying to create at Women's Health Melbourne and succeeding to create with a multidisciplinary fertility approach that patients can have the best of all worlds in terms of their care. 
And, you know, I would say to patients that I would recommend seeing Mandy during treatment. If you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling anxious, if you would just like someone else on your team, a fresh pair of eyes, looking from a holistic perspective, as well as the medical perspective, looking at diet, looking at lifestyle, looking at nutrition, looking at, you know, energy, looking at stress, trying to work together so that our patients are in the very best place because, I think if a patient is as holistically well as they can be and we're all working together to try and be champions for their success, then they're most likely to have the best fertility journey. I agree with everything you've said and that's why I love working at Women's Health Melbourne because there is such a great team to nurture patients and support them on their journey and also empower them to want to be healthier versions of themselves. It is a marathon. It's a marathon to fall pregnant. It's a marathon to be pregnant. And then obviously motherhood is its own marathon. So we always want to be our healthiest versions of ourselves. Um, When someone comes to me for preconception care, I would always make sure there's no red flags. So if I think that there is a red flag, be it, you know, an older woman and she may have poor ovarian reserve or it may be an endo, a patient who I suspect has endo and really needs to get that treated ASAP. Or it might be someone who might have, you know, a family history of genetic conditions or had genetic carrier screening and doing IVF and PGDs is really beneficial, may be beneficial for them and it's worth them looking at their options, then I would always refer straight to a fertility specialist, to Ralia, so we could work together to make sure that this couple or this woman has the easiest journey to starting her family. If a patient who seems like she's very healthy and ovulating and the sperm analysis is good and there really are no red flags but it's been a certain amount of time of unsuccessful pregnancy and we've been making sure that she's having intercourse in the fertile window and she's doing all the right things and I I never want to waste a patient's time so if it's been quite a few cycles and as a couple they really want to get things going then that's another time when I refer on. I'm certainly not a practitioner who says I'm the only person who can help you. I really think that everyone needs a team approach and it's important to know as a practitioner when to refer on. But it doesn't mean that you would disappear from their care. See, when, when we work together, you know, we kind of, I think we've all got what we can contribute. So for a patient like that, I can certainly take it to the next level. But, you know, I would agree with you that I'm similar in that I would never pressure someone to go to assisted reproductive treatment if they didn't want to or if they weren't ready and if they wanted to try other things. And in our clinic, we also have the option of reproductive surgery, you know, looking and exploring for undiagnosed, more subtle pelvic factors like endometriosis that can't be seen on ultrasound. And we can also offer things like gentle super ovulation, plus or minus using IUI, intrauterine insemination. So these techniques can come before IVF. So, yeah, I would always want to, and I think it comes back to asking the patient what their goals are and just really clarifying what their goals are because some people are really open to 
going to a higher degree of intervention if, for example, their goals might be not just to have one baby right now, their goal might be to have two or three babies. They're struggling with number one and they're starting a little bit older. So for someone like that, we can use some of the benefits of IVF, like freezing embryos for the future, that might help them to, in the grand scheme of things, achieve their broader goals, whereas other patients might be having secondary infertility, trying for their second or third child, or they may only want one child. And they really feel that their goal is to get where they're going as um, with as little intervention as possible. So they might be much more keen on taking a stepwise approach. And I think we can really support patients no matter what their goals are to try and achieve what they want to do. And, you know, I, I kind of see my role as a fertility specialist, not as a dictator, but as part of a collaborative collaboration and, you know, between the couple or the woman and other practitioners and trying to get her closer to her goal. And, um, and, and that's something I'm really proud of because I think it's a really nice way of doing things. And I think everybody really gets the most out of the relationship that way. Absolutely. And it's a customized approach. It's not a cookie cutter approach. Every couple or every person needs to work at their own pace. And I too also ask them, what is the timeline? I look at how old they are. I also have a chat to them very early on about optimizing sperm health, because I would hate to go on a six month journey with the the female and then work out that his sperm was suboptimal. So I'd rather optimize sperm at the same time. So even if a couple lands up seeing a fertility specialist coming to Euralia, that everything's optimized so we can get going straight away. And then I support them through their treatment with you. And, you know, over the years, so many of your patients have come back to me telling me about Jean and how wonderful your Jean is, your, your nurse who, who does all the ultrasounds. And, you know, it, it's, it becomes a family approach. And I think that is just very, very special. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Mandy, you touched on something that I wanted to ask there when you spoke about sperm. And that is, we've spoken a lot about women and how acupuncture is used, but how, how is Chinese medicine used with men and fertility? So there is some lovely research to show that acupuncture, weekly acupuncture on men helps improve their sperm motility and morphology. The theory is that, number one, it helps to decrease stress. And it also, by decreasing stress, you're decreasing heat in the body. So in Chinese medicine, we say stress becomes heat. And we know that heat damages sperm. The other thing is that it helps increase blood flow to the testicles, which is where sperm are made. And increasing the nutrients in the blood flow to the testicles will actually also help produce healthier sperm. So any, any male coming to me for sperm health will get a whole lot of antioxidants and multivitamins. Not many like to come for acupuncture. We do not go anywhere near the genitals, don't worry. Acupuncture is <laughs> usually on the legs and the hands and the head. But usually with men, I find that the results are fantastic just by following diet, lifestyle and taking supplements and getting them to come in for weekly acupuncture sessions is a lot more difficult. Whereas I find for women, 
that weekly check-in with me and that emotional support is very helpful on their journey. And because a textbook menstrual cycle is broken up into four stages and four weeks, we adjust the, the acupuncture points according to each week of the menstrual cycle. So, yes, acupuncture is known to be really effective to help with male fertility or infertility, but I don't see as many men for acupuncture, but rather for the diet and lifestyle and supplement advice. It's interesting that you say that, Mandy, because, you know, we know as fertility specialists that at least 50% of really the main problems with fertility are are from the male side of things, uh, at least a contributing factor, and 30% a purely male factor. And we also notice that there's a lot more buy-in to all kinds of treatments, the basic investigations, and also the diet and lifestyle change from the female and not necessarily so much the male. And I, I tend to see that that evolves in cases where there's male factor infertility with significant barriers to conception in the IVF lab. I think it's probably poorly understood that male factor infertility is not solved by IVF. Certainly a lot of male factor infertility you know, can be amenable to using IVF, but it doesn't necessarily mean that in a woman's first IVF cycle where the sperm's injected into the egg that things are going to work. We see in male factor infertility, poorer fertilization rates in IVF, even with ICSI, where we inject a sperm into the egg. We also see poorer embryo quality and we have a lower translation of the number of eggs collected to the number of embryos available to transfer. So male factor infertility certainly can't just be a she'll be right fixed with IVF situation. And I often do see that if a couple have have learnt the hard way, have had IVF treatment and it hasn't been successful, then the male will kind of buy into diet and lifestyle change. And sometimes I think if only he had been with us from the beginning of the journey, if only he'd been working in the three months lead time before IVF was tried to give us that better quality sperm, to stop smoking, to reduce toxins in the environment, to really pump up the antioxidants to kind of try and reverse environmental oxidative stress and the impact on sperm, to make sure that all those dietary micronutrients were on board or the building blocks for healthy sperm. If only that was there from the get-go, then IVF itself would have a greater power to achieve what's necessary to overcome that burden of malfactor infertility, which is intrinsic. Yes, and I, I have to say in my 16 years of practice, if the male comes to that at first appointment and shows an active interest in their journey as a couple and is on board with stopping smoking, eliminating toxins in their environment. It might be just, you know, heating up plastic in their microwave, stopping to put the glad wrap in the microwave, stop using a plastic water bottle. It might be, you know, knowing that, you know, the weekly saunas and spas with their buddies pre-COVID days um, could be affecting their sperm. And I explained to them that they have a powerful influence on the health of their sperm. Their sperm are being produced every single day of the year. It takes three months for that sperm to be produced and mature and until it's ejaculated out, and, and they have an influence on that. So they can make 
they can get, you know, what I'd say primary school swimming squad swimmers and make them Olympic swimmers just by tweaking their diet and lifestyle and taking those antioxidants. Whereas a female is born with her eggs. We cannot influence her egg quality in a big way. We can pump her with antioxidants, which will help the environment in which the egg is maturing in the ovaries. But her ovarian quality, her egg quality was actually determined when her grandmother was pregnant with her mother. And all the influence that she's had throughout her life, whether it's, you know, environmental toxins and plastics and fragrances and um, certain medications, that's already had an impact on her, on her egg quality. So it takes two to tango. We need to make sure we're optimizing both sets of what is going to make up their baby, the sperm and the egg. And we can actually influence the sperm in a much greater way than the eggs. And why wait for the woman to go through a whole lot of fertility treatments and injections and heartache and the two-week waiting period multiple times for a male to then turn around and say, okay, babe, I'm on board now. I've watched you through, you know, so much trauma and now I'm on board. And for a lot of women... The mere fact that her husband says or her partner says, I'm on board, completely changes things because it gets to a point where there's a lot of resentment, where she feels like the pressure's on her. She has to miss work to go to all the appointments. She's getting the blood test. She's injecting herself. And what's he doing? He's still going with his friends to the pub for, for beers and still, you know, having his social cigarettes and a lot of resentment builds up between a couple. So I like to preempt that and empower the couple right at the beginning of their journey that they're in this together and parenthood starts now. You're going to choose your, your future child's school together. You're going to decide if that child's going to do ballet or football or you know what, how you're going to parent your child. So start now and, and choose the health of your child right from the beginning. Mandy, I want to talk to you a little bit about the timing of acupuncture in IVF because this has been a bit of a controversial area and one I think we agree on, but I think that in the past and probably also knowledge has been gained, I think, you know, looking back, IVF is only 40, 42 years old now when we look at the very, very first IVF babies in the whole entire world, but IVF as a available medical treatment in the mainstream sense is more like 30 years old. So it's normal and natural that it took a while to figure out what was helpful and what wasn't in terms of acupuncture and timing of IVF procedures. I mean, my feeling is that you know, acupuncture is more of a longitudinal treatment than a treatment in the moment. And my feeling is that while a patient might choose to have acupuncture to achieve relaxation on, say, for example, a day of embryo transfer, um, I don't you know, say to patients that if you don't have acupuncture on that day, the acupuncture won't be effective and you have to have acupuncture on that day for the acupuncture to be effective. What's your take on, on that situation? So early on in my career, I followed the research that was available at the time. There were lots of studies that showed that if you had acupuncture within 24 hours before and within 24 hours after embryo transfer 
and then three days after, if it was a blastocyst um, that was transferred, that significantly increased pregnancy rates and live birth rates. And for many years, I would drop everything and go just to do these treatments on patients that had invested, that, that had trusted me on their journey. Um, and over time, I started to realize this was very stressful for them. They would already be stressing to leave work, to fit in, you know, to, to rush to the, the clinic to get the embryo transfer. They were only getting their transfer time the day before. And it created a lot of stress and anxiety for patients to try and tick everything off their list. And so I started to say to patients, once you know your embryo transfer time, you let me know and we will make sure that we organize acupuncture at a time that's going to be suitable for you and not stress you out. And I started to realize that it's actually about keeping the patient calm, relaxed and empowered as opposed to, as I said before, ticking things off a list. Then more research came out that showed that it was acupuncture and its effectiveness in IVF is a dose-dependent, has a dose-dependent effect. So the more acupuncture you have, the more of a significant effect it has on pregnancy rates and live birth rates. And the magic number was actually 12 treatments. So anything more than three treatments is worthwhile and effective, but the more you have, the better it is for you. So I say to patients, start as soon as you can. Let's book you in for weekly sessions and I will work with you and tailor your treatment according to where you are in your cycle, how you're responding to the medications, what is being reported on the ultrasounds, how big are the follicles, how many are there, what's the thickness of your uterine lining, and obviously what is what's going on with your physical symptoms, whether it's bloating, heartburn, anxiety, poor sleep, headaches, whatever it may be, I'll tailor the treatment according to how you're feeling. And if you treat the person, not the condition, or you treat the person and, and you know, that's when you get the best effects because no one person is exactly the same and you can't have a cookie cutter approach. I so agree with you, Mandy, because, uh, you know, as as I've been practicing for more and more time, it, it's really dawned on me how much stress is actually innate to the process of IVF and to the way that we conduct IVF. Some of it's physical, like you say, you know, we use medications to make the ovary release as many eggs in one month as you'd release naturally in a year all at once. So we've really, you know, got a tenfold plus increase on the hormones in your body. So women feel physically uncomfortable. We ask women to inject themselves with medication, which is many people's worst nightmare. They, you know, often don't like needles. Nobody likes needles. And so women are overcoming this stress. So just administering the medication can be a level of stress. And then we are getting this information piecemeal about what's going on in the cycle. So a woman's having an ultrasound. She's having a look at the number of follicles available on the ultrasound. And so she knows, okay, at best, that's how many eggs I'm going to get in my cycle, one egg from one follicle. And then when she does have her egg collection, particularly if it's for the first time, it's a surgical procedure. She has to come into an operating theatre, have an anaesthetic, 
And there's a level of stress involved in in that and a level of discomfort physically. But that's really only when it starts. You know, we find out that day how many eggs have been collected. But we know and intellectually we impart this information to patients, but we know that not every egg is going to fertilise. It's going to be somewhere between 50 and 70% best case scenario. But for some patients, it's less than that, that things don't go along the averages. They might have a more significant problem or just bad luck in a particular cycle that they have a lower than average fertilization rate. But even in patients who have an average fertilization rate, they see that not every egg fertilizes. Not every fertilized egg is going to make an embryo. So every time we bring that new bit of news to the patient over this course of treatment, their their numbers are going down and that is so stressful because we know there is strength in numbers and will this be successful, will it not be successful? And then taking it to another level, there's a financial commitment that, that couples and women make in IVF. It's huge. There's so much stress that we bring to the table and we're bringing it to a population of patients who are already stressed because they've got infertility. So, you know, it is just so natural and so obvious that things that we can do to reduce the physical and tangible translation of that physical stress and that psychological stress are going to help patients' outcomes because stress on the body does have physical manifestations. Yep. And I've recently written a blog on um, the effect of stress on the body and how acupuncture can help this um, for fertility. So go have a look at the Women's Health Melbourne blog. I think that being able to support someone during that stressful process that you've just outlined Obviously, the doctors and the nurses involved are doing that, but sometimes it can be really quick and rushed for the patient and then they have time to debrief on their drive home and then they come and see me and and they want to talk about it and I will reassure them that, no, that that's a really good amount of of eggs that they got or, you know, and, and I think it's really important to reassure them and help them feel relaxed. The other thing, and also to to instill hope in them. So even if that cycle wasn't as successful as they had hoped, that they will fine-tune things and the next one will be that little bit better and that little bit easier. But the other thing I wanted to say about stress is that women who go into an embryo transfer more relaxed have a relaxed uterus. And I'm told by some IVF doctors that it's easier to transfer that embryo into a relaxed uterus, into a relaxed woman, as opposed to a very stressed and tense woman. Um, Do you have a comment on that, Raylia? Well, I think if a woman is frightened, she's going to naturally tense all her muscles and it will be more difficult for her, I would say, to have an, an embryo transfer. And, you know, I think you know, it's a speculum. When we when we do an embryo transfer, we have a speculum in the vagina, which is like an instrument for that we use for a pap smear. But it's kind of a special form of torture to do that to someone with a full bladder. Yes. And um, so you, you've got to have a full bladder because we've got to be able to see what we're doing with ultrasound so we can perfectly place that little embryo so that it's got the very best start in life. 
but you know the, the experience is not what I would say would be a walk in the park it's it's something that I really aspire to to make it as gentle as possible and and I think that's really one beautiful aspect of the model of care that we have at Women's Health Melbourne with continuity of carer with one practitioner in that my patients know me when I'm doing their procedures and doing them personally it's not like they're in this difficult situation with a stranger you know and and I think that rapport is really beautiful and really powerful because when you're doing something difficult and it's and something uncomfortable you do gain solace and comfort from that trust and that relationship and you can do a better job I think for a patient because of that relationship and I'm always really aware of that particularly if I'm covering one of my colleagues at Melbourne IVF on a weekend or something like that and I'm, I'm doing a transfer for someone who isn't my patient, they actively try and really kind of, you know, be soothing, be relaxing, make sure that, you know, I introduce myself properly, they know, you know, that, well, who I am and that I, I'm doing the very, very best job for them um, when their doctor can't make it to try and, and kind of get that rapport but, you know, you can never have the same rapport in someone you just meet on the day of a procedure than you do with your own specialist. And that's something really beautiful about our model of care. Absolutely. Agreed. Mandy, I think we could talk to you all day. We probably need to do another episode with you. Um, thank you so much for joining us again. Where can people find more about you if they want to track you down? Thank you, Geordie and, and Raylia. That was fabulous. I feel like we could keep talking. I am on the Women's Health Melbourne website. I am on Instagram as optimal underscore fertility underscore Mandy Azule. You can find me if you Google my name in a few other places. My kids did a Google the other day of my name and they found some old photos from before I got married and had children and they're like, Mom, is that really you? 